Hello, this is episode 21 of The Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for young children. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is part one of a two-part series. It was a sunny Sunday afternoon when 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery set out from his home in Glen County, Georgia, just outside of Brunswick, where he lived with his mother in the predominantly black community called Fancy Bluff. Nestled in a marshy coastal corner of Georgia, Glen County is about 300 miles southeast of Atlanta, with a population of 65,000. It's known for its barrier islands and vibrant African-American culture. Like many southern communities, the county's history is marred by racial violence, including three lynchings in the 19th century. According to census records, the county is about 70% white and 27% black. Ahmad Arbery was ready for a run. A former high school football star, he was passionate about staying in shape. According to family and friends, He spent most of his free time running. Aubrey couldn't have known that it would be his last run. He would be pursued and cornered by father and son Gregory Travis McMichael, two white men, and shot dead in the street. Aubrey had attended Brunswick High School, where he starred as a linebacker and dreamed of playing in the NFL. He suited up for his last game in his senior year for the War of the Border game between high school all-stars from South Georgia and North Florida. At 5'10", Arbery was too small for the pros, so he put his NFL dreams aside after graduating in 2012 and decided to pursue a career as an electrician. He started courses at South Georgia Technical College that fall, but dropped out the following spring. Arbery impressed manager Jerry Wilson as a bright, friendly kid with a ready smile when he began work at Blue Beacon Truck Wash as a high school student. The two became friends, and the older man became something of a mentor to the younger man. But Wilson said something seemed different about Arbery when he returned to the job in 2017. He was in a depressed mode, he said. I was concerned about him and tried to talk to him. He agreed that he was going through something, but didn't tell me what it was. He would always say, I'm okay, I'm just in a dark place. I feel like he just wasn't satisfied with the direction of his life. Like a lot of young people, Arbery struggled with direction in his life. He also ran into trouble with law enforcement. 
In December 2013, more than a year after his graduation, Arbery was waiting to enter a Brunswick High School basketball game when a resource officer spotted a handgun in his waistband. He ran, and police chased and arrested him. Arbery no longer had the gun, but admitted that he had been armed. Police later found a 38 caliber semi-automatic handgun in front of the gym. Arbery was charged with weapons possession at a school and obstructing an officer. Arbery had another encounter with law enforcement on November 7, 2017, when a police officer spotted him sitting alone in his 2001 Toyota Camry in Townsend Park. The officer approached and asked Arbery what he was doing. Arbery said he was rapping to music in his car and protested the officer's questions and attempts to search his vehicle. The encounter was captured on police body cam video. The incident escalated when Arbery asked why the officer, Michael Canago, was harassing him. Canago claimed that he felt threatened and wrote in his report that veins were popping from Arbery's chest, which made me feel that he was becoming enraged and may turn physically violent towards me. Canago requested backup from another officer. I'll tell you why I'm here, man, he said because this area is known for drug activity. According to the records, Arbery stepped towards the officer who told him to step back. You're bothering me for nothing, Arbery said. I'm working at Blue Beacon. A second officer, David Haney, arrived a few minutes later and screamed at Arbery to take his hands out of his pockets. Arbery complied. Kanago searched Arbery for weapons before Haney arrived and determined that he was unarmed. Haney then forced Arbery to his knees and attempted to tase Arbery, but his taser malfunctioned, according to Kanago's report. I get one day off a week. I'm up early in the morning trying to chill, Arbery told the officers as he sat on the ground. I'm just so aggravated because I work hard six days a week. The incident ended with the officers allowing Arbery to leave, but forbidding him from driving his car because his license was expired. Lawyers working for the Arbery family would later describe the incident as a situation where Ahmad was harassed by Glynn County police officers. The lawyer said there was no justifiable reason for Arbery to be threatened with a taser. This appears to be just a glimpse into the kind of scrutiny Ahmad Arbery faced not only by this police department, but ultimately regular citizens like the McMichaels and their posse pretending to be police officers. In December 2018, police responded when Arbery and three friends were accused of trying to shoplift a television from a Brunswick Walmart. A responding officer ordered the four to sit on the parking lot pavement. Arbery was handcuffed face down on the asphalt after he tried to stand up and argue that he hadn't done anything. These experiences were probably not on Arbery's mind that Sunday afternoon. All of that was behind him as he donned running shoes, khaki shorts, 
and a t-shirt and set out for a run. Aubrey's route that afternoon would take him through Satilla Shores, just a couple of miles from the house he shared with his mother. The Daily Beast, Justin Glaw, described the predominantly white neighborhood as featuring several homes decorated with Trump flags, one bearing the president's smiling face with the phrase, make liberals cry again. To get to Satilla Shores, Arbery had to cross U.S. Route 17, the four-lane highway vacationers traveled to reach the beach resorts of Jekyll Island. For years, the road also served as a human-made boundary between black and white. But that boundary has proved more porous in the last couple of decades. Tony Shaw, a black Air Force veteran, has lived near one of the two entrances to Satilla Shores since 2012. His family was only the second black family to move into the neighborhood 35 years ago. Shaw returned to the community eight years ago after being stationed elsewhere. Shaw said his white neighbors give friendly waves, but he winces at the sight of a Confederate flag his next-door neighbor frequently displays on a flagpole in his backyard. Shaw didn't see Arbery jog by that afternoon, but he wasn't surprised that his white neighbors took notice of Arbery's presence. They're not used to seeing a lot of black faces around here, he said. Francisco Duran, a truck driver of Dominican and Puerto Rican heritage, moved into a ranch house in Satilla Shores a few months ago with his wife and two small children. Duran found his neighbors somewhat chilly. When he waves from his yard, he said, a lot of people don't even wave back to us. It was also a neighborhood on edge. Neighbors were concerned about property crimes and called 911 about possible car break-ins and potential trespassing. One of those calls was made on February 11th, almost two weeks before Arbery's death. A neighbor named Diego Perez was keeping an eye on a house under construction for homeowner Larry English. A motion sensor security camera pinged English, who lived two hours away. English texted video to Perez and asked him to check things out. Perez armed himself and his neighbor, 34-year-old Travis McMichael, pulled up and accompanied him as they approached the house to look for the man seen on the video. Travis saw him in the yard and stopped, Perez said. He confronted the man halfway into the yard. He said the man reached for his waistband, and Travis got spooked and went down the road. Perez said Travis went to get his father, Gregory McMichael, no one was present when the McMichaels returned to the site. They said they recognized the young man because they'd seen him in other security camera videos at the construction site in previous months. It has not been confirmed that Arbery was the man they saw that day. Police arrived on the scene and determined there was no evidence of wrongdoing. Security camera video would later show that several people had walked through the construction site, including a man and a woman, another man, and even children. 
Homeowner Larry English confirmed that several people had entered the site over several months. The house was wide open, having no doors or windows installed, and nothing was taken from the property. English did not know anyone in the videos which were transmitted to his phone by his security system whenever someone entered the property. English's attorney, J. Elizabeth Grady, released three security camera clips recorded on December 17, 2019. The clips show a young black man wearing a white t-shirt and shorts at the site. Grady said it appeared the young man might have been coming onto the property for water. There are two water sources at the site, at the dock behind the house and near the front of the house. The water sources were not within camera range, but the young man is seen moving to and from their locations. In the final clip, the young man takes a few steps toward the road and then jogs away. None of these instances of people entering the construction site appear to have generated any calls to emergency services. Of the people seen on the construction site in the security video, only Ahmad Arbery was pursued and harmed. On the afternoon of February 23rd, emergency dispatchers received two calls about a black man running in Satilla Shores. One caller at 1.08 p.m. indicated a black guy in a white t-shirt was in Satilla Shores on a property under construction. And you said someone's breaking into it right now, the operator asked. No, it's all open. It's under construction. And he's running right now. There he goes right now, the caller said. The operator said she was sending police to the scene, but added, I just need to know what he was doing wrong. He's been caught on camera a bunch before. It's kind of an ongoing thing out here, the caller said. Neither caller mentioned any criminal activity. Larry English said he reported no crime after video surveillance seemed to show Arbery on the property and nothing was taken from the property. In fact, by the time English saw the video footage, Arbery was already dead. I don't want it to be put out and misused and misinterpreted for people to think I had accused Mr. Arbery of stealing or robbery because I never did. Larry English told CNN's Chris Cuomo. Security camera video recorded just minutes before his death appears to show Arbery entering the property and remaining for only three minutes before continuing to jog down the street. 64-year-old Gregory McMichael was in his front yard that afternoon when Arbery jogged by. McMichael had been a Glenn County police officer from 1982 to 1989. Later, he worked as an investigator in the Brunswick Judicial Circuit District Attorney's Office from 1995 to 2019 when he retired. During his time as a detective, McMichael had previously investigated Arbery when he was sentenced to probation in 2013. The Washington Post reported that McMichael was stripped of his law enforcement certification and the power to arrest in January 2006 after failing to complete the required training the previous year. 
Georgia law requires law enforcement officers to complete 20 hours of training each year to maintain their power of arrest. McMichael continued to be deficient in his training for the years that followed and didn't get the waiver required to restore his powers of arrest. He didn't alert his supervisors to the deficiency until 2014. He was at risk of being suspended indefinitely and was ultimately stripped of his gun and departmental vehicle while he applied for the waiver. McMichael eventually had his certification restored only to lose it again in February 2019, just two months before his retirement, for failing to complete the required training in 2018. Weeks later, his supervisors reassigned him to work as a staff liaison in the Camden County District Attorney's Office and noted that he would not engage in any activity that would be construed as being law enforcement in nature. He would not carry a badge or a firearm in his new role. McMichael's personnel record shows that he cited multiple medical and personal issues as reasons for missing his training programs. In a letter explaining his absences between 2005 and 2010 and requesting an exemption, McMichael claims he experienced clinical depression following a heart attack in 2006. He also wrote that he and his wife filed for bankruptcy in 2009 and that he suffered another heart attack later that year. The records also indicate that McMichael completed only one training course in the use of de-escalation tactics, but completed four sessions devoted to understanding Islamist terrorism and another on introduction to terrorism. The Glenn County Police Department itself has a troubled history. Over the years, its officers have been accused of covering up allegations of misconduct, tampering with a crime scene, interfering in an investigation of a police shooting, and retaliating against fellow officers for cooperating with outside investigators. Disciplinary records went missing. Evidence room standards weren't maintained. In a report last fall, the Glynn County manager described the department as suffering from inadequate training, outdated policies, and a culture of cronyism. Over the last decade, the department, which has 122 officers, has faced at least 17 lawsuits, including allegations of illegal search and seizure. One suit accused the department of wrongfully killing an unarmed white woman after officers fired through her car windshield. An investigation into that shooting found that Glenn County officers had tried to interfere with the inquiry to protect the officers involved. One of the officers in that shooting later killed his estranged wife and a friend. The wife's mother accused the police of ignoring several alarming encounters in the months before the killing. Police Chief John Powell, who was hired to clean up the department, was arrested earlier this year along with three other department officials. An investigation into a disbanded narcotics task force led to allegations that they had covered up an officer's sexual relationship with a local drug dealer and informant. Just days after Arbery's murder, Powell was indicted on charges including violating the oath of office, criminal attempt to commit a felony, and influencing a witness. 
The department found evidence of the misconduct in 2017, but failed to investigate. In 2018, the department lost certifications with two law enforcement bodies, the Georgia Association of Chiefs of Police and the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement. Gregory McMichael saw Arbery jog by that afternoon and called to his son, Travis, the guy is running down the street. Let's go. By the guy, Greg McMichael meant the suspect in two neighborhood burglaries, neither of which he had witnessed. He would later tell police that he pursued Arbery because there had been several burglaries in the neighborhood and he believed Arbery fit the profile of the suspect. Yet law enforcement records show that the only burglary reported in the seven weeks before Arbery's death was the theft of a handgun from Travis McMichael's unlocked pickup truck on January 1st, 2020. Greg McMichael's retrieved his 357 Magnum from his bedroom while Travis McMichael grabbed his shotgun. The two got into Travis's pickup truck which bears the Gadsden flag and the slogan, Don't Tread on Me, and headed down Satilla Drive. Travis McMichael drove while Greg McMichael rode in the truck bed. The McMichael's neighbor, William Bryan, was in his front yard when he saw Arbery jog past, followed by the McMichaels in their truck. Bryan's attorney, Kevin Goh, said Brian got into his car and followed because he wanted to get a picture of Arbery. There had been a number of crimes in the neighborhood and he didn't recognize him, and a vehicle he did recognize was following him, the attorney said. Again, law enforcement records indicate only one crime reported in the neighborhood from January 1st to February 23rd. Brian captured cell phone video of the four-minute chase. Twice Arbery's pursuers tried to block and corner him, and twice he avoided their attempts to cut him off. On the third attempt, the trio cornered Arbery, and one of them shouted to him, Stop! Stop! We want to talk to you. Travis McMichael exited his truck while his father provided gun cover for him. Brian captured the confrontation on video. Anyone who wants to see the video can easily find it online. I will not play the audio here because I don't wish to traumatize further anyone already upset by videos of unarmed African Americans being killed. In the video, Arbery is running when a white pickup truck blocks his path. Travis McMichael stands in the street next to the driver's side of the truck with his shotgun, while Greg McMichael stands in the truck bed. A dashboard blocks the video for a moment, and unintelligible yelling can be heard. The video then shows Arbery trying to run around the truck on the passenger side. When they reappear in the frame, Travis Michael and Ahmad Arbery are struggling over the shotgun. They move off the road, leaving the video's frame again. There's a gunshot, and then another as Travis McMichael shoots Ahmad Arbery at point-blank range. Greg McMichael raises his gun. Finally, there's a third shot, and Arbery falls to the ground, his shirt red with blood. Greg McMichael 
rolled Arbery's body over to see if he had a weapon. Ahmad Arbery was unarmed. An autopsy report from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation later determined that Ahmad Arbery died of multiple shotgun wounds. Arbery suffered a deep, gaping shotgun graze to his right wrist, as well as wounds to his upper left chest and lower middle chest, according to the report. Eleven shotgun pellets were removed from Arbery's chest, and there were several injuries throughout his body. The autopsy showed Arbery had no drugs or alcohol in his system. When the Glynn County Police Department arrived on the scene, they encountered a former colleague with blood on his hands from checking Arbery's body for weapons. Arbery was on the ground bleeding out, according to the report. They took down Greg McMichael's account of events and then let him and Travis McMichael, who had fired the fatal shots, go home, as well as William Bryan. Seventy-four days would pass, and national outrage would ensue before any further movement occurred in the case of Ahmaud Arbery's murder. The Hate Crime Files podcast is researched, written, produced, and hosted by Terrence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening. And to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks again for your support. This episode is part one of a two-part series. Come back in two weeks to hear part two. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe tell your friends and family about it, and consider leaving a positive review at iTunes Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.